Hey team, it's Matt Rinkine here. And you might have heard, my brand new book releases on Amazon on March 8th. It's been a labor of love that I think can really help you navigate some of the challenges you're experiencing in your own life. I go over toxic positivity and how to think you're in it for everyone else. In reality, you're in it for yourself. And I express that through this entire book and help learn from our own mistakes and how to turn the lens on ourselves and ask good questions. So go to Amazon on March 8th and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome to another episode of the Eternal Optimist podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, we have breaking news for you to kick off the episode today. We have multiple Emmy award-winning broadcast news extraordinaire journalist, Carrie Barrett, who has once suffered from a debilitating fear of speaking, but now she has turned that around into a very successful career. I can look at her right now and see that there are Emmys in the background and an amazing human being. We're gonna go deep today. We're going to go deep today. And Carrie, first of all, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. That was such a great intro. Yeah, breaking <laughs> news. I, I've never said that before, breaking news. <laughs> so it just sounded fun. I know. Nicely done. <laughs> yes. Well, so take me back in time here to the very first time that you ever said breaking news or you did your very first broadcast on air. What was that first time like for you going and being on the air? <laughs> I was so bad. I was so bad. I like to say it was like the two T's. I was terrible and I was terrified. They didn't <laughs> launch me into breaking news until I had gotten my feet under me. Thank you. Appreciate that. But I do remember my very first debut on TV was a live shot. And I was reporting. This is a tiny little town in Texas. When you're a broadcast journalist or a newspaper, journalist for that matter. You usually start in a small market, cut your teeth, you know, you're still a little wet behind the ears, you make all your mistakes there, and then you move up into a larger market. So I was doing a live shot. It was about November and they were doing a blood drive. The Red Cross was doing a blood drive the way they always do around the holidays. So they had sent me out to cover it. I was obviously like freaking out, <laughs> but I did have sort of a similar experience because when I interned, when I was a college student at a station, the reporter that I followed also did a live shot on a blood drive around the holidays. I still very much remember exactly what she said. So when I got out onto the scene and the photographer cued me and I heard that angers tossed to me in my ear, I sort of froze. And then I was like, oh, I know what to say. And I just repeated verbatim what this reporter said. Now, here's where it gets interesting. So when this reporter was doing it, she was in a larger city and it was packed. The parking lot was full. There was a line like 50 people deep. And that's how she started her live shot. When I started my live shot, I also said, the parking lot is packed. There's a line 50 people deep. However... There was nobody in the parking lot. There was not a line of one person, let alone 50. And I have no doubt that the anchors were like, what is she seeing something that we're not seeing? Because there's nobody there. Like 
no one. Uh, so, so I got back, got back to the station after that and was pretty sure that I was going to have a bit of a sit down and a debrief with the boss about clearly inaccurately reporting things that were not happening. <laughs> but I think they all just sort of chalked it up to like the first live shot jitters that everybody has. And from there, I progressively <laughs> improved. Thank goodness. Holy freaking cannoli. <laughs> that was awesome. Thank you. Oh, man, I can only imagine it. I can only imagine it. Oh, it was it. awful. Awesome. This is awful. You know, I'm really thankful that this was like pre-YouTube, if that tells you how old I am. So those bloopers are nowhere to be found. <laughs> oh, man. Well. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> thank you for diving in the deep end first. I love it. <laughs> Our show is about hope, and you can do it too. And to hear that first story about how you, someone who's so accomplished, had that very first time, it sounds like a complete blunder, and you're smiling about it, and you made it through it. So <laughs> I'd love to go back a little further in time from there, because one of the things that you're known for is that in the beginning, you used to have this debilitating fear of speaking, and then you yeah. became very well-known and famous for being a great speaker. So I'd love to understand... When we say debilitating fear of speaking, what does that actually mean, debilitating fear of speaking? It means back of the room, passed out. If not passed out, breathing in a paper bag, there's a good chance I'm in the fetal position. I may have peed myself. That's how bad it was. And it was not just a fear of being seen. It was really a fear of even being heard or acknowledged. And that's like a little bit dramatic, but I was sort of the person who always sat in the back of the classroom. And if I had to sneeze, I was mortified because I didn't want to make any noise. I didn't want any attention on me. I didn't want anybody to look at me. When I started working in New York City, which is where my hometown was when I went to high school, you know, New York was our local market. So a lot of my friends from high school are still in this area and they would message me like on Facebook or my station email or whatever and be like, you are the last person I would have ever thought would have done. In fact, months ago, one of my former high school classmates emailed me and he's like, I'd really like to talk to you via Zoom. And I'm like, this is weird. We haven't spoken in like, I don't know, 30 years. Yeah. And he's like, I just want to apologize. I remember one time you shared your desire to do something like this with me. And I was like, you'll never do that. You don't even like to talk. And he's like, I have sort of harbored that for my entire life. And I just wanted to apologize. I didn't even remember it, but I appreciated him apologizing for it and acknowledging it. But anyway, so if you want me to go back a little bit further, I've always been this way with small groups of friends and people I know really well, not as much, but I am shy. I'm certainly an introvert. I don't like networking events and all of that other stuff because I feel like I never know what to say. But at home by myself, I love to sing in the mirror. And so there probably was... A oh, oh, time out, time out. What's the song you sing in the mirror most often? Oh, There's I a song. Sing all sorts of, well, for a period of time, it was nothing but all the scenes from the musical Annie. <laughs> oh, the song come <laughs> out tomorrow. Just... A day away. Yeah, I love that, yes. love that song. Yes, love that it. Love my it, love motto. It. <laughs> Some women are dripping in diamonds, you know. Oh, I'm really Haley. dripping in pearls. Look oh. at me, look at me, look at what I'm dripping with, little girls. Oh, you, know, you yeah. like Miss Hannigan? Oh, I love um, Annie. <laughs> I don't. Good. I never said I had a good voice, but my point is, there was probably always this sort of secret performer inside of me that I never really acknowledged. Anywho. 
So I had always wanted to be a veterinarian. I love animals. I've always had animals. A part of that also, if I'm being completely honest, was I would prefer to work with animals than people because they don't judge you and they're not mean and they love you as long as you're nice to them. And sometimes they love you even if you're not. And so I wanted to work with animals. And that was always my career plan. I went to college. I was a semester and a half in and was on my third try of passing organic chemistry. And yeah, that put an end to my (laughs) veterinarian desires or trajectory, perhaps. And so I took a year and a half off. I wanted to figure out what it was that I was going to do, but I had no idea because I had always planned on doing this thing. And a year and a half went by and I still didn't know what I wanted to do, but my school had started this communications program. It was very broad. It was speech pathology, PR, marketing, a little bit of journalism, business language, like uh, the whole thing. And I was like, well, I probably can find something within this department that I can use to make a living, number one. Number two, there will be no organic chemistry or any chemistry. Okay, okay. Right? Okay. And then number three, as much as it terrified me, I think I recognized at the time there was some subjectivity to being a good speaker. Organic chemistry is objective. It's right or wrong. But speaking is subjective. A good speaker, a bad speaker, we all make it our own. And so I would have to take two public speaking courses. So I knew that if I just was able to muddle my way through them, I could pass. And that was the plan. That was the plan. You were going to try to sit at the back of the class, just barely get by and sneak through. Okay. Yeah. Now, where it really began to change was, I promise I'm coming to the end of the story soon. Because I had taken so much time off, I was looking to jam my schedule full of credits and, you know, whatever, full time was 12. I was taking 24 and I wanted to jam another three credit hours into my semester. So I was nine to five or nine to six Monday through Friday. I figured I needed to get an internship and I needed to find an internship in an industry that worked 24 seven so that I could intern on the weekends, overnights, whatever, early mornings. That's news. News is 24 7, 365. So I got an internship at, at the station with the girl who taught me all about the Red Cross blood drive livestock. From day one, I absolutely loved it. So I had to then figure out how it was that I was going to A, get over the fear. And B, not just get over it, but be good enough that somebody would actually pay me to do it. That was the moment when I had to get serious about improving that element of my confidence and my skill set. So you were very aware that you like this and I got to figure out how to overcome this. So you're hyper aware. You have to face the fear head on now. There's no getting around it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because I remember when I was first starting, anytime we were out on the scene, the reporter and whatever videographer that we were with would be like, you need to get in front of the camera and shoot a stand up. A stand up is basically where you're out on the scene and you've got a microphone in your hand and you're talking about something that's going on around you. Sometimes you'll toss to a packaged story or a soundbite, but 
For a resume tape, you need to put a demo tape together to get a job in this industry. I needed to have on-camera elements and a portfolio, if you will. I didn't have a job yet. So the only way I could do it was to record something when I was out on the scene with another reporter. And if I tell you, like, I was embarrassed to even stand by myself with this reporter and videographer who had both been in my shoes, by the way, even when nobody else was watching. It's very awkward. I was very awkward anyway. So yes, I was very aware that this was a mountain I was going to have to climb. Yeah. How'd you go about it? Like, how'd you, how did you dive in? (laughs) Well, I mean, when you first start a lot of news stations, which is why I do what I do now, they have coaches and they have consultants. So they bring people in to help train you. You also have seasoned people around you that you learn and you watch from. And I watched a lot of TV news and I tried to see what I liked about one person, not so much about the other, and then incorporate some techniques and skills and sort of make them my own. We also, as a reporter who was a daily reporter, I also had to be on air every day. And I would say that was probably the biggest component of my change. I I was able to understand the skills from the coaches and consultants, and then I had to execute them every day on the air. I didn't have a choice to say like, oh, I don't feel like making a video today, or I'm not feeling confident today. I'm not going to do this because, you know, well, that's the end of the job. And so every day in small doses was the key. Live video, live newscasts was also a key for me because I had to learn to dig myself out of whatever thing I had dug myself into. You know, I lost my train of thought or I messed up some facts or statistics or whatever happened. Like I had to figure out how to navigate my way through. The show has to go on. I can't just throw my mic and walk away. So that's why I always say live video. If you're looking to get good on camera and you want to do it quickly, live video is the best way to do it. Because once you learn that you can navigate your way through whatever is thrown in front of you. And it's sometimes it's not going to be pretty. Often it's not going to be pretty, but you will come out the other side standing. Once you know that, then you take those skills and you are able to explore the space and not just function on skills, but function on really making a connection with the audience. And then when you've gotten to that level of proficiency, you don't second guess yourself as much. It makes the live stuff easier and it makes the recorded stuff easier because when you're recording, you're not overthinking it because you know you have the skills. And instead of 10 takes, maybe you do one or two and you would be surprised at how much that will cut down your production time. So it was doing those, it was doing the daily, you know, even if it was 30 seconds and then it was realizing that whatever happened, I could figure out my way out of it. And it wasn't one moment, certainly, but that was really when things began to change. Man. All right. Well, then what other key intersections might you be able to share between where you are right now? You're getting that experience. You have that internship. You're making your resume tape all the way to your first Emmy. Uh, what are the next key one, two, three defining moments? I would say, well, there's a few of them. I would say the first, and this happened early in my career, was 9-11. As a new reporter, and I was in Texas at the time, so I wasn't near Ground Zero or the Pentagon or anything like that, or, or Shanksville, Pennsylvania, but I was inundated with heavy news in a way that I hadn't 
consumed it before. I think probably the closest we ever got to prior to that in the news industry anyway was CNN at the inception of the first Gulf War. That was when we saw live warfare, basically. We saw reporters hiding under desks and it was all coming to us live. And that was right when CNN was brand new. So this is really the only experience. And I was younger when that happened. I don't even think my parents had CNN. I think I just heard about it and then watched years later. In that moment, I watched the reporters. Obviously, we were wall to wall. Everybody was wall to wall. And I watched them out at Ground Zero. And I watched them at the Pentagon. And I watched them in Shanksville. And I saw that it was, it's hard to even describe. Everybody was off script. Everybody was reacting in the moment. And it was certainly the images. And it was the facts and what happened. But I watched them make connections with their audience in a way that I don't think had really been done before. You know, it was very personal for a lot of them. And I don't mean to say it was about them. I don't. It's, the news is never about the reporter, but it hit home in a way that I hadn't been affected by news prior. Yeah. So that was understanding that it wasn't just about delivering facts and pictures. It was about connecting with the audience and giving them information in a way that guides them through and they feel a connection with you and they trust you. And it's not just because you can read the words correctly. And it's not just because you can give the facts correctly. Those are important. However, it was more about the emotional connection that I saw in those moments. So that I would say was really the first pivotal moment. And then I moved into my next job was in Phoenix, which was very much a breaking news station. And I ad-libbed pretty much the entire show every day. Not the entire show, but it was sort of thought of themselves as a mini LA, which is very breaking news heavy, you know, car chases and the whole nine. So I I did ad-lib live every day. That was the next pivotal moment. And then I would say really what truly made the change from skills to authenticity was my time in Philadelphia. I worked on a morning show in Philadelphia and it was a long friggin' morning show. It's seven hours and you know, and you're live. And I would say like the last four hours was very interview heavy and it was very ad lib. It was a Fox station. And if you ever watch local Fox news, at least back then, it's like a free for all, you know, (laughs) they go pretty crazy. Yeah. And at least back then they did, especially in Philadelphia. I had a great mentor there. I really learned the value of improv and I could keep a conversation going with myself if I needed to. And I, (laughs) I could make it interesting and funny. So that was like the final, I think, piece of the puzzle that needed to come together for me to be able to take skills and confidence and ability, then bring it all together with authenticity and like, well, I'm not going to try and just be the broadcaster anymore. I'm going to be Carrie. And like, sometimes I'm really bad at this and I'm going to own it when I am. And, and we're going to talk about it and we'll all have a good laugh with, you know, I mean, it just was very off the cuff. And I would say that was where I finally learned to let go of this idea of perfection. I just love everything you've shared. You shared defining moments that were wrought with all kinds of challenges. And from those challenges, you learn so much. I love your antenna is up in a painful moment or a moment when you're exposed, when you're naked, if you will, just showing whatever it is that you're sharing. It's ad-libbing and you mess up and you own it and you learn from it. And you did that for years in multiple markets underneath challenging circumstances. 
I admire and respect you for that because remember everyone listening, we came from a place of debilitating fear of speaking. She didn't think she could do it. She didn't want to do it. She hid from it. And yeah. she went through everything she just shared, including that live blunder on TV her first time, 50 people <laughs> in line behind me. <laughs> and uh, there's cool. no one there, Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> super cool. Well, so you now, of course, are multiple Emmy Award winning. And I want to get to what you do now professionally and share everything about what you do. Before we get to that, let's share one of your Emmys. You won an Emmy. What did you win your first Emmy for? And what does that mean to you? Now, my first Emmy was back in Salt Lake City when I was actually over in Iraq and I was covering the second Gulf War. And this was 2006-ish. Interestingly enough, my husband was in the Air Force at that time and his squadron, he flew F-16, his squadron commander came to me and said, we'd really like to do a story on deployment preps. They're not a political story. It's not about the war. It's about the families. I said, that sounds great. And why don't we do this and this and this and this and this and this and this? And so we took this idea of doing sort of like one or two pieces on just following the families through their deployment prep to me taking an F-16 ride to talk about what it feels like to fly one of them. And then we went over to Iraq and I was at Balad Air Base where my husband's squadron was and into the hospital. And we talked with enlisted folks. We talked with officers. We talked with support. We did supply runs up into Qatar and Kuwait and flew C-1. Like It was fascinating. That was probably the highlight of my career in terms of meaning and experience. Then this one is my most recent, and I don't know if the audience can see it. I'll it's just beautiful. I'm going to see it on YouTube channel for sure. This is super cool. But this was in New York City at NBC for breaking news. This was back in 2016. Oh, uh, there was a big crane collapse in Lower Manhattan, actually in Tribeca, and some people died. There had been some problems on the work site. There had been several complaints filed, etc. So we were wall to wall with that. I don't know, good like eight hours. And that's for uh, my breaking news coverage. Wow. Thank you for sharing the things you've shared so far about your media career on that side of it. And amazing. And by the way, I love the Emmys. Just keep showing those. On the, you you got to check this out on the YouTube <laughs> channel when this comes out. This is pretty cool. About 24 minutes in. This is awesome. See this Emmy. Well, let's take us forward to what you do now. I understand you help coach executives, teams, leaders, and you help them overcome some of these challenges of fear and their persona and helping to, to cultivate that. So please, what do you do now? And take us from there. Yeah. So it's interesting. I started my business, boy, it was about 20, it was right before the pandemic started. And I honestly didn't know exactly what I was going to do when I left the news industry. I thought I was going to go into PR. This is just what a lot of former newsies do. And that is in fact, not how it went down. I started strictly talking about public speaking, then, which I do, I do keynotes and corporate trainings and speak conferences and all that other stuff. But really, my 20 plus years of experience is media speaking. So speaking to the camera. And so I like to say what I do now is not Toastmasters, but it's camera masters because speaking on camera is the new public speaking. I work with, as you mentioned, corporate teams, 
sales teams to teach them a how to speak on camera or on video. A lot of them are interested in media opportunities. So it's sort of your classic media training. And then I also work with teams and executives on prepping them for their on camera elements. So sometimes it's social. Very often it's for hybrid events or it's for virtual panel discussions or their own virtual presentations or pitches. Sometimes it's client pitches or it's regular sales calls over Zoom. And they need to understand how to deliver compellingly and interestingly through a lens. And it's not the same as speaking on a stage. There are some elements that are similar, but there's a little bit of overlap. A lot of times people think they're good on the stage, which means they're going to be good on the camera. And that's not how it works. For my small business owners and entrepreneurs, I also do media training. For them, usually the end goal is slightly different. They're looking to create video content to support their business and grow their personal brand. Sometimes executives want that, but on the small business side. And so for them, it's very often they want to create video content to scale message. They want to create video for sales and marketing materials. And very often they are looking to gain visibility through social media video as well. But there is an element of being on camera and connecting, whether it's a video podcast like this, or it's a live stream, or it's a LinkedIn sort of thought leadership video. And Listen, there's so much good stuff out there that if you don't know how to deliver your message well and compellingly, people are going to go somewhere else. They just are not interested in watching something that's boring, which is why I talk about edutainment a lot. Video on social media needs to be edutaining. Now, in the news industry, we used to call it infotainment, which is information and entertainment, and you're sort of bringing the two together. In the business world, it's called edutainment, same concept education and entertainment brought together. Yeah, I love edutainment as a word. Never heard that word until right now. So I wonder who might be an example of an ideal client because you said small business and owners and I, my mind goes everywhere. Can you make that lens a little bit smaller for us? Yeah, absolutely. So on the small business side, the way that I offer my service is through a digital program and then either group or one-on-one coaching virtually. And it's a small business owner. It is a B2B service provider. It is somebody whose name or brand, I like to say, is sort of on the side of the building. So if you are a financial advisor, if you are a lawyer, if you are creating, you're in marketing and you need your clients, for example, to get better on social so you can create content for them. I've done a lot of work with insurance. I've done a lot of work with legal and I've done some work with finance. On the corporate side, it's interesting. I've worked with a lot of large organizations. I've worked with GE. I've worked with Johnson & Johnson. I've worked with AmeriLife, which is an insurance marketing organization, a big one, and some other decent-sized insurance companies as well and legal firms. And so a lot of them are looking to... I'll give you an example. The law firm that I'm working with now, their lawyers have this book that they release every year and it's sort of a one of a kind in the industry and they need to go on a book tour and they need to be creating video. And then they also do webinars, but their webinar presentations are really bad. Uh, (laughs) Boring, boring, boring. And they're very technical. Their clients don't understand the words that they're using. It's not delivered well. 
And same thing when they're creating their videos in order to try and gain traction with legal reporters and legal media outlets to pitch their book, their videos are sloppy. They say, um, a lot. They're not shot very well. And boy, I hope they don't recognize themselves if they're listening to this. It's an opportunity for growth and improvement, baby. Uh, That was pretty descriptive. (laughs) Anyway, yes. So they hired me to work with their lawyers in media training. And for the corporate clients, I should mention, they certainly get access to the digital program. But for them, it is one-on-one, either in person, depending on their needs and budget or virtually. And then I'll do group. For example, you know, if I'm working with a C-suite, I'll do the C-suite individually. And then perhaps each one of them has, I don't know, 10 direct reports that they want then to do group training with and maybe some individual pullout sessions for the key players. You make this sound really simple and easy now to coach them and lead them to these changes. I wonder what the change was like for you when you went from being on the news and on the air for these number of years to now running your own business. What was that transition period like? What was going on in your head? How did you take to that? Because running a new business from a career you were the best at, being humble and starting over to a new business just sounds like uh, a lot of us who've done it's very challenging. So what was your experience there? Yeah, well, I will tell you this. (laughs) It was a very steep climb and I'm still climbing. So it's interesting. I mentioned that I was interested in going into PR and the way that I ultimately found my way into my own business was I met with a woman who did PR and communications for one of the large global law firms here in New York City. And we were meeting for coffee and she asked me what I wanted to do. And I was telling her and she's like, you know what, what you're telling me, you're crazy to go back into corporate. You have this skill that you've curated. You can fix people's problems. They'll pay you well to do it. You should start your own thing. And I was like, oh, okay. And that was legitimately how much thought went into it, which in hindsight sounds ridiculous. (laughs) So I went home and I told my husband, like, I'd like to start a business. And he's like, you don't know anything about business. I'm like, that's true. And he's like, you have trouble balancing a checkbook and you're terrible with money. True and true. But I said I was going to figure it out. I asked him for some seed money. You know, let's jump into our savings. Give me some seed money. And I'm like, eh, don't worry. In like three months, I'll have it paid back. Okay, sure. <laughs> Do you even uh-huh. have a website? Three months. And so I'd go to networking meetings and somebody would ask me how I was going to scale. And I, no kidding, would be like, stand by. Google, what does scale mean? I didn't know anything. I didn't even know the language. Uh, deliverables, I don't know what that was. I knew nothing. PNL, I actually thought was PNL. I didn't know it was a financial form. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. It was a very, very steep and painful climb the first okay. probably two to three ish, two and a half years. Finally, I've gotten my feet under me and I understand the language more. I've hired people that understand the language much better than me to help me with elements that I don't get. And I can focus on then really creating the best experience for my clients. Thank you for sharing that. Because I think so many business owners, when they get out there, they are afraid to share that they didn't know everything starting on day one. And what I just, what I feel right now is that on day one, you had all the skills, you just didn't know exactly some of the business terms and how to make it into a business. You knew what you were yeah, doing. Yeah, I had no idea yeah. how to make it into a business. I yeah. was like, 
I can't believe people aren't just showing at my door with suitcases of cash. What the hell? I know. The, yeah. Yeah. They're, well, that's rude. Yeah. Well, amazing. A lot of us have that experience. And those, we all go back and quote somewhere I saw in a football locker room, Notre Dame, those who survive will be champions. And that's it. You've made it to this point where now, like two and a half, three years in, you have figured out the business part and you're really good at what you do. So now it, I wish you the best luck because now it's when it gets fun. Now it's when yeah. it gets really fun. It does it? Okay, good. It does. <laughs> it really does. That part. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so cool. I'd ask you this. How can we find out more about your business right now? Like what's the website? You said you didn't have one three months in. Well, I'm sure you have one now. Where's I the website? How do, do we find I, you on social? I just revamped it. So my website is carriebarrett.com. It's very easy to remember. You can find me on any of the social platforms, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Pinterest, LinkedIn. It's all I am Carrie Barrett, except LinkedIn. It's just Carrie Barrett. And there's a bunch of freebies on my website, free resources, mini media training courses, mini YouTube optimization courses, lots of free opportunities for your audience to to gather some skills and see what questions they have. And if you have questions and you're listening to this or watching, don't hesitate to reach out. I'm always here and I love talking to new people and seeing if I can help them with their problems. I'm going to go log into it here as soon as we hang up because I'm very interested. It's always a big hook for me when I hear someone that they're willing to share for free a lot of their expertise in a video. And like anyone out there who's ever hired a coach before, you know that you can only go so far by trying to do it yourself. And if you really want to save time and scale a business, hire an expert to do it with you or for you. So I'm going to go check it out. Very quickly, I'll keep this brief. When I first started this, I actually got a job as an adjunct professor here at one of the universities in New Jersey because I had always done the thing. I had never taught the thing. And I wanted to hone my ability to teach with students who were not as advanced, perhaps, but were still eager to learn and had skills that I could provide them. So I honed my ability to teach working there for a few years. And then I had clients, but now I've been able to expand and really teach. And yes, you're right. I can provide all the information with resources and courses, but where the coaching comes in is like, oh, I'm stuck in the execution of this particular element, or I need feedback on this, this I, I'm having trouble with or whatever. So I appreciate you saying that. I always think that if I can help people with a resource that's out there, I'm happy to, but you're right to do it a little more quickly and to get customized help. That's where the coaching comes in. I totally agree. You know, and I'm someone who's been investing in coming. Mean, I am a coach. I've been investing in coaches now for the last decade. And even before that with like probably more at home things. So I love that you have resources there and that you're a coach. And you've said some things that are really intriguing to me. It started from the very beginning when you had this debilitating fear of speaking. And then you, you went head on at the problem. Eventually you hit this crossroads and you went head on at it. And then you became the very best. And that's the results. I'm looking at an Emmy. That's the best, right? So you did that. And now you've transitioned to another place where there was like, oh, what do I do? You've got this skill. You're continuing to hone it. So I just see this pattern of you figure things out. I'm curious what else you might be doing to continue to hone your skills in the coaching space, knowing business. Just how are you continuing to learn, Carrie? Because you've proven you can do that over and over again to, until you're the very best at it. So uh, well, I, don't, I, I don't know if I'll make it there in business. <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm not young anymore, but I'll get there. No, I'm joking. I would say that you're right. Every sort of pivotal decision or moment in my life 
professionally and personally has always been based on taking some sort of risk. So risking, I mean, the news industry, not just was I bad at it, it's insanely competitive. I mean, insanely competitive. Moving into that trajectory, not being a good speaker, that was a risk. Starting my business without any business experience other than knowing how to make a video was a risk. I married my husband, who was an Air Force pilot. I met him in Texas. We got married three years later. And I knew that when I married him, I wasn't going to have the traditional sort of, I'm a reporter and now I'm going to move up to this next market share. And these are the stations that are in that bracket. And these are the ones that I apply to. I was going to have to find a job wherever they moved him to, wherever his next assignment was. And so that was risk as well. But it all worked out. I mean, so far. Yeah, <laughs> I'm still <Yeah>. married. <laughs> yeah. I, I made it to New York and now I'm doing this. So the way that I try and hone my abilities now and and I keep working on them, I read a lot, a lot, a lot. I read a ton. I have so many courses that I am in, in the process of working through. I haven't gotten through all of them yet, but I do learn from courses. I have a fantastic business coach who I just started working with. She's amazing. I know that It's okay to not know everything. And so I have not a huge team by any stretch, but a lot of people that I work with to execute on the parts that I am not great at or don't have time to do or are not sort of a value add to the bottom line for me. When you say you read a lot, what are you reading? If you could share a, a book or an article, maybe one to three things you might be reading or that have influenced you. Right now, I'm reading Book Yourself Solid by Michael Port. I'm also reading Perfect Webinar by Russell Brunson. Ah. And I'm also reading, I'm looking over at my stack of books that I have. I I don't read one at a time, which is probably not a good thing. Uh, (laughs) I'm also reading Product Launch Formula by Jeff Walker. Got it. Got it. I've read Book Yourself Solid. Love it. Love it. And these are excellent. So you're furthering your education and you're working on just consuming things and getting better at it, learning more. So I love that. What courses are you taking or what are you interested in taking? It's helping you. (laughs) So right now I'm also taking my business coaches course, which is, it's actually got a funny name. It's called Business Weenies. Um, She helped. Yeah. Her name is Katie McManus. She's fantastic. Okay. I am taking Amy Porterfield's course, which is called the Digital Course Academy. Right now I'm marketing my digital programs really just through like referrals and networking, but I'd like to market it in a more sort of online capacity as well. So I'm taking her course. I am also taking... Christina Jindali's course. It's called How to Run a Kick. I don't know if I can swear on your podcast. So it's a kick. Well, you already a- said business weenies. I guess you, okay, you can keep word. going. <laughs> <laughs> That's the name of her business. That's the name of the course, not her business. It's Katie McManus Coaching. Christina's course is How to Create community and a Facebook group that not only supports your clients, but also brings new ones in. And while my corporate clients are not really on Facebook, a lot of my one-on-ones are. And so I'm looking to create a community there where they can support one another. They can get questions answered. They can post videos and ask for feedback. Fantastic. 
This is fantastic. And thank you for mentioning Katie McManus's name. And yeah, so just an example of someone who's a constant learner who never feels that they've perfectly figured everything out. They're just constantly learning. So I love everything you've shared so far. You've shared, uh, we can find you at everywhere, Carrie Barrett. I am Carrie Barrett. And I believe I'm already following you on Instagram. And I'm going to go and check that out again. Thank you. I'll give you a follow back. I just actually, it's funny because I just relaunched my Instagram. There's not very many followers there. So if you're listening, give it a quick follow and I'll follow you back. But I had an older Instagram account that was full of news viewers, which is awesome. They're very supportive, but not ideal clients or ideal learners. And so I just started my new I'm Carrie Barrett account. Uh Aha. Got it. I see it. And I am going to follow you right now. Excellent. Oh, there it is. This is nice. Video coach. I am Carrie Barrett. Oh, yes. Excellent. Thanks. Those of you out there, this is what it looks like right here. We've got it right here on YouTube. Carrie Barrett. Here we go. All right. It's got the links in there and it's got contact information in there. So feel free to follow Carrie there. Well, so Carrie, we've reached the lightning round here and you already answered one of my favorite questions, which is what are you reading? So I'd love to ask you, is there a certain music or a song, an artist that really inspires you and fills your bucket? (laughs) <laughs> so embarrassing. I'm a Swifty man. Oh, <laughs> Hardcore. A Welcome to New York. Yes. <laughs> I love her. And I have to say, I've admired her. She's a talented songwriter. She plays a ton of instruments. She also just has this approachable girl next door quality. But I have admired her really, truly ever since she was accepting her VMA award and Kanye, she was 18, I think. And Kanye West got up on the stage. I don't know if you remember it. And I said, do like, remember that was Taylor, classless. I cannot believe you this. did that. Horrible. Anyway, she was, listen, as an 18 year old, first of all, I wouldn't have been up on that stage. Number one. Second of all, she was so composed and she handled it so well. And she has taken so much hate at such a young age that most people wouldn't be able to deal with it. But she has come out on top. She is at her apex as of this recording. She just keeps getting better with age. And I very often have her music at full blast in my car. <laughs> nice. Awesome. So Taylor Swift, just so you know, I took my girls to school every morning for, like, this is a year and a half before the pandemic started. And yeah. that's what we had. We had a CD, my wife's car, Taylor Swift, Welcome to New York was their favorite song or Shake It Off. Yeah. So we listen to that all the time. So yes, love Taylor Swift. This is the <laughs> Eternal Optimist podcast. When you hear the words Eternal Optimist, what does that mean to you, Carrie? When I hear the words Eternal Optimist, it's interesting. So I have a story for everything. I apologize. I was having this conversation yesterday with, is there such thing as toxic positivity where you don't even acknowledge and you don't let others acknowledge? And I don't think eternal optimist means that you don't acknowledge challenges or you don't let other people express their challenges. And certainly it's not that you should keep them bottled up either. What I see in that is that there is acknowledgement and eternal optimist to me is mindset, but it's also about doing the thing. So if I want to remain optimistic, I've got to do the thing to overcome this challenge and doing the thing is in it of itself demonstrative of having optimism of a positive outcome. So that's what it makes me think of. I absolutely love that answer. It's acknowledgement that there could be a challenge or something really, really hard right now. And on the other side of that, when I do the thing, is that optimism. When you keep your eye down the road a little bit, when you're in the thick of it right now, keep your eye down the road a little bit and keep doing the thing. That's where your optimism comes from. Love it. 
Thanks. Well, Carrie, it's been a real pleasure <laughs> having you on. We definitely thank you. We love you. We appreciate you. And thank you for being part of our show today. My gosh, it was great. You're a fantastic interviewer. Thank you. Very kind of you to say. Go find Carrie online. Check her out. <laughs> and this has been one more episode of Eternal Optimist Podcast. Thank you. <laughs>